welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Yuri, thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this. Um, I'm just really happy to be invited to do this. And, and thanks for, for allowing me to talk to your people. Of course. It's my pleasure. I, I um, am very excited to, to hear more about you and what you're working on. So I'd like to start off with by asking how you describe yourself and what it is that you do. Funny you should ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I think of myself as being an accidental artist because I came to myself as an artist. I discovered my creativity just as I was living my life. Mm -hmm. So it was an organic experience. And, um, you know, oftentimes you hear people say, oh, well, I always drew my whole life and I was born with a crayon in my hand or, you know, things like that. I can't remember a time when I wasn't drawing or making art. And my story is very different from that. I come from a very creative family, um, somewhat orthodox in some ways. Mm -hmm. And we were always making stuff. You know, I think of my family as having been like a, we were like a DIY family. Mm -hmm. But then, like in the 50s and 60s, many people made do by making things themselves. It wasn't so unusual for that to happen in people's homes. And so, you know, my family was no different. Um, we made Christmas ornaments and Barbie doll clothes, candles. Most of our food was from scratch. And we made holiday cards, just like anything you can think of that you could make at home. We did that. Mm -hmm. So it was and also a very big family that I, that I come from, too. It wasn't so much that we were an artsy family. We didn't draw and paint and things like that. We also weren't DIY in the sense that we weren't, like, knocking down walls and adding onto our house, not, not that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but, you know, kind of sort of like everyday things or extra things is the way that I think about it. So I, I actually I am an artist. People think of me. Oftentimes as being as a, a designer, but I, I don't really think of myself as being so much a designer, even though I realize in many ways I am. But I feel that my artwork is it's autobiographical mm -hmm. and it's also very evocative and it's emotional and it comes from deep within me. And it's not so much about mathematics and making sure things fit um so my artwork is also very layered so even though there are some aspects of it that are design like i really think of myself as being an artist because most of my work comes from inside of me mm -hmm. so, so i'm an accidental artist okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah actually i wanted to talk about that because so you mentioned yourself as an accidental artist and that you approached it a little bit later. 
Um, could you walk me through then some of your early – what you did early on and like your, maybe through your early undergrad days to your first couple of jobs? Well, I was kind of aimless when I was younger and didn't have any ideas about what I wanted to do. And um, <clears throat> I started going to college when I was 16. So I actually have been to college twice. And when I was halfway through, I thought, God, what am I doing? I was like 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, not the faintest idea. So I thought that I was going to stop, and I would go back again when I decided what it was that I wanted to do. So I kind of knocked around and, you know, rode horses and worked in restaurants and just kind of, like I said, didn't really have a plan to my life or anything like that. But... The interesting thing is that I always felt like there was something indefinable that followed me around. It's kind of like always in the background, like behind me somehow. And I always tried to ignore it. It wasn't like it was like a like a presence of some sort. And I didn't know what it meant or what it was doing there. And so I always tried to you know, kind of say, leave me alone. What are you doing? Why are you here? Mm -hmm. And, and see, the interesting thing is that I realized eventually that that presence was my creative life that was waiting for me. And I didn't know that at the time. Like I said, I tried to get rid of it and make it go away. But it was saying to me that I needed to pay attention but I didn't know what to pay attention to. I had no idea. But at the same time, I also always felt like there was something that I was supposed to do in life, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. So I think about it sometimes, ignore it other times. And so eventually, all of these things came together, as I said, because I lived my life and everything kind of fell into place. So... What happened was that I went to fashion design school and couldn't get a job. And then I finally got a job working in a store, and I started making jewelry to accessorize our mannequins. And so that's when I really began to make things aside from clothing. So I did that for a while, and then I started working with boxes, and then... When I had my children, I began to make all of their invitations for their parties because when I was a kid, we always did that. Mm -hmm. So naturally, you know, I would do that as an adult. So at first they were very quiet invitations and smaller. And what happened was that they were like collage style. And the more that I went on with them, the bolder they became as art pieces, the larger they became. And they eventually turned into like three and four page pieces that I folded and taped together. And they were these elaborate designs. And so it's interesting because you can look at the progression of these collages and it's all in there how I grew as an artist. So eventually what happened was this house was purchased and I had to do something um, with it that was creative 
and very unlike anything anyone had ever seen before, but I didn't know what that would look like. I had no idea. I'm the faintest idea. You know, like oftentimes brides-to-be know what their wedding dress should look like, but I never looked at a paint chip. I never looked at furniture. I never looked at fabric. I didn't have any kind of idea what I wanted, but I knew I wanted colorful, Mm -hmm. and I knew that I wanted it to be a very special environment in which to raise my daughters. Hmm. And my objective, excuse me, my objective was to create a space that would support and nurture their interior creative souls. That was what I was doing. Hmm. So I created this very special environment with my children in mind. And I wanted to be a place that that could support them creatively. And so I thought about them, but I didn't think how this space would affect me living in it. I never thought about that before. But what's interesting now is that when my children were younger, I would say this is their childhood home. Mm And now they're in their early 20s, and so now I say this was their childhood home. And I think of those as being very, very different statements. So what's happened is that I have creative children, Mm -hmm. and I recognize that part of that is genetics. I mean, there's no question about that. But it's also, I believe, how I nurtured them and how they were nurtured by the space as well. So it's very interesting, this concept about making a creative space in which to raise children. And I feel that a lot of environments I see that are made for children, I don't see them as being for children. They're an adult's idea of what a space for kids should look like. Mm-hmm. And, and usually when I, I see these environments, I never feel that I, – I don't feel that people get it right very often. Um, I see a lot of primary colors, and you'll see very little of that in my work, very, very little. So without a, a plan to attract the press or to do nothing beyond being a mother and making a home, a nest for my children, mm-hmm. after a while – the press started to want to speak to me. So, of course, I had not much to say. (laughs) I just was a mom with their kids, basically. Mm -hmm. So what happened was it wasn't that people came to me and said, oh, I see what you did. Let's have a conversation about it. They came to me and said, can you tell me what you did here? Mm -hmm. So I, I sat down. And spent a lot of time over the years writing and writing and writing. What did I do? What does it mean? Why did I do it? Where did it come from? And just asking all these questions and writing and writing and writing and trying to get to the bottom of it. And then I started being asked to talk about my work. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm writing and writing and writing. And eventually, I became very... um, well, comfortable talking about my artwork Mm -hmm. from the repetition of doing it. And so I I basically 
took the things I learned from my childhood, the idea of making something your own when you make it yourself, and I created an environment that is an environment in and of itself. So I didn't want it to be related to any other environment. I wanted it to be solely its own. And there are many things that I put in place in this space with that in mind. A lot of this stuff is their custom designs. Um, I don't have furniture you could necessarily recognize as named name designer furniture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the fabrics are abstract fabrics or geometrics. Uh, they're not fabrics that have you know pictures of like uh, animals and houses and children and things like that. Because I, I wanted people to be here. I didn't want them to be pulled out of the environment because they had their own connections to pieces that were in inside the space. Mm-hmm. I wanted the environment to hold them within it. And so I always think that what we want as people is to have a never-ending conversation with another. And I feel that what I did with my home is I've created a never-ending conversation, but it's with a living environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Having so I I spent some time looking at the the many TV interviews um, <laughs> that happened in your home, and it, it's it's absolutely uh, fascinating. And I could definitely see that that conversation happening because it's you can't help but have a conversation about the, each room um, and the different pieces within it because they they are in effect statement pieces themselves. I'm curious, when you designed, let's say, pieces of furniture um, or elements and you do put together types of fabric, how do, do you go out ahead of time and, and purchase the fabric or the, you know, the various colors and bring them into the space and then make a decision from there? Did you already have a predetermined plan to go then search out for those particular patterns and colors? Well, first of all, I was kind of a failure as a client (laughs) with the different architects that were hired because I kept going on these shopping trips with the assistants Mm -hmm. and I came home without buying anything. And I'm thinking, I'm failing, I'm failing. Um, But I didn't see anything that I wanted to purchase. Mm -hmm. But those experiences helped me to understand that I had to create my own individual things that what I wanted didn't exist in the world. So that was part of my coming to my ideas about what it was I wanted to do. So another story that's kind of interesting is that, um, well, the first architect that had been hired, I had to fire him after six months. I'm not going to tell you who it is. (laughs) (laughs) He's famous, but anyway. Um, and then there was another that was hired. And at the end of the project, he said, look at April. You know, this is this is not my project. This is your project. So, you know, I don't really have much to do with this. But I had gone out. You know, I collected pieces of furniture here and there in my travels. And I was with the design assistant one day. And I said, well, let's go look at the furniture that I, we have in the storage. So I pulled it out and looked at it. And, and I said, well, I think it's time to start you know, recovering these pieces. And she said, you can't do that. 
you don't have a design, a, a concept, have a color scheme. You, you can't do that. You're, you're, you're miles away from getting to that point. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, well, maybe you can't, but I can do that. Because I knew that a color scheme didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So I began bit by bit um, to take pieces. And I also began to buy up fabrics, too. So I have a collection. It's not a huge one, but vintage. You see, mainly my stuff is vintage pieces. Okay. They're vintage. I cut in a little bit of modern contemporary fabrics, but for the most part, they're vintage and pretty much overwhelmingly, they are also garment fabrics. And the reason that I do the garment fabrics, well, actually two reasons. One, it's hard to find vintage upholstery fabrics, okay? <laughs> That's part of the truth, all right? Mm-hmm. Whoever has the, the stashes of fantastic 60s and 70s upholstery pieces, call me, please. I don't know where they are. <laughs> so the other part of the story is that, you see, in terms of creating art pieces, I'm always thinking about availing and unveiling and the idea of creating more intimacy by removing or changing things between the object and the viewer. So if I have made these sculptural furniture pieces, and actually I call these sculpture masquerading as furniture, and it's an ongoing series I've been doing for about 18 years or so. And when I cover them with garment fabrics, I'm removing a barrier between the furniture and the people sitting on the pieces because the experience is made more intimate with the use of the garment fabric Mm -hmm. because those were created to be placed on a body and not on a piece of furniture. And so I'm making the piece more inviting and more intimate as well as, again, there's a story that's being told. And by the use of the vintage fabrics, I'm taking, I'm taking history and mixing that in with the pieces. Mm-hmm. So I, what I do is I'll find the frame and then I'll just start looking through my fabrics or I'll buy some fabrics, you know, here and there. But sometimes I have to buy pieces exclusively for a certain thing I'm working on. Other times I can find what I need in my stash of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes my pieces actually tell a story and other times they might just be just about the looks of the piece. There's not really a story there. Okay. But I think of my pieces as being a metaphor for life because we don't, we don't, we think oftentimes we know everything about a situation, but as an example, these sculpture pieces, I design them so they're done 360. And generally speaking, you know, pieces done just what you see, which is the front of the piece. But I also put trims and different fabrics and patterns on the box of the pieces too. And so that is a surprise. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a home should be a place that's filled with discovery and surprise. And so I put that into these sculptural furniture pieces, too. That's interesting. With each of these furniture pieces, because you you mentioned you like to add um, garment fabrics, 
Are there particular types of fabrics you see yourself being attracted to more, like um, you know, silk versus a cotton or a wool? Is there something that has that type of, of feel that you notice you're into more? Um, I like textured stuff, but you know, it's kind of hard to find textured fabrics. But I will use silks, and I will also use wools too. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I try and keep like the more delicate fabrics on the side where people aren't abrading the fabrics when they're sitting on them. So I, I do think about things like that when I'm, I'm making my stuff. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, I just sort of work intuitively, which, which is what I've, I've always done. Mm-hmm. And I always try not to match. So if I've matched colors, it's because I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Because, see, I do everything backwards, and that, like, works for me to do everything backwards. Mm -hmm. Because when you do everything wrong, it turns out right. And so that's kind of like my motto or one of my credos or something is to do everything wrong. Hmm. Like, as an example, that I don't match stuff. And I like to use materials in ways that they're not – you know, they weren't meant to be used that way because I, I don't have training in any of this stuff. So I'm like free to just do whatever because I'm not constrained by whatever the rules are. Do you feel that that does make your art better and, and more vibrant because of the fact that you don't have, you know, you're more of a self-taught artist and have developed your own artistic style throughout trial and error? Yeah, because, you know... My work is wild and untamed. <laughs> it is. It's wild. And it doesn't have it doesn't have any boundaries on this planet. Mm-hmm. And you know, it just comes from this place deep inside me, which is what I had said earlier. And these pieces are like I said, they tell stories and um they are places that provide us with things we don't expect like when i have a piece with a cushion i always make both sides of the cushion a different fabric but you may not know that and you may even own the piece and one day you may pick it up because maybe your change fell out you know behind the cushion and you pick (laughs) it up and you discover this so that's along the same lines of we may think we know everything about something but you may not really know it Mm -hmm. and one day you discover it Mm -hmm. that's that's amazing. I, I'm. I find that fascinating that you also do the sides that people don't notice so much. My uh, my grandfather was a, an upholsterer, and he used to take care of every single like sides of the the front and the back and and the even the underneath of the furniture because yes. he he would have the same kind of approach. It was like there's going to be a time where you're going to move this couch or tip it in some way, and you're going to have this aha moment where this beautiful you know, brocade is going to show up underneath and you never would have thought of. And it just made his pieces that much more vibrant and interesting. I love that, that he thought that way too. And you see also, because I come from a sewing background, this idea of garments mm-hmm. and um, things that people wear, when you're sewing, you always want the inside to be as beautiful as the outside. 
Mm-hmm. You don't want beautiful outside, then you know, crappy look on inside. Want everything to be totally gorgeous and flawless. And so that's what I'm always thinking about: is that you want every part of each piece to be beautiful. So also like the undersides. Um, of a chair, I'll put a piece of fabric like you're talking about your grandfather, the same kind of thing, same mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that if you have me looking underneath it or maybe um, the underneath fabric is the same that as the piece that comes over the front so that you actually see it when when you're looking at the chair. But this whole idea of discovery and having things be an adventure and having these stories that flow from room to room and object to object is something that I thought very much about when I was doing this. And it's so interesting to me that I was doing this project, like I said before, for my children, and it's turned into this. I, I mean, it's I have a whole life I wouldn't have had mm-hmm. if I hadn't done this house. And it's also interesting that the catalyst the three elements that had to be in place for me to to do this, clearly the DIY childhood has a lot to do with it. And I grew up with fabrics. My mom sewed, and I sewed too when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And having gone to design school and working with fabrics for a long, long time. So it's the DIY background and then becoming a mother and doing the same things with my kids that my parents had done with us as kids and then having the opportunity with the space so I've been working with like painting boxes and adding drilling holes and adding beads and different things to these wooden boxes. And so I felt that I went from a bunch of small boxes to a space that had a whole bunch of large boxes. And so that's what it was like for me. I was still doing boxes, but I went from very small to very, very large. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because... I've used my working with fabrics and also my working with jewelry, um, and I've incorporated them in different ways in my home, not the ways in which those things are usually, you know, taught, like how to make jewelry and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like um, the legs on the table in my kitchen, they're lucite cylinders, they're clear lucite, mm-hmm. and I think that one is round and I think maybe two around and one is a triangle. But what I did was I drilled holes in it, drilled mad holes, just drill, drill, drill to my drill. Mm-hmm. And then I did like I was decorating them and making jewelry that I all hung on the inside of these clear cylinders. So I used my beads. I used plastic pieces. I put pictures of my children inside that are, you know, adhered to, to the in- interior surface. And so I was using jewelry making techniques, but I wasn't really making jewelry for the body. So it was kind of like the idea of putting the garment fabrics on the furniture. Mm -hmm. I, in a sense, made jewelry pieces for the interior of these legs from a table. And these pieces can stand by themselves as a sculpture. They're, They're beautiful pieces, but they just happen to be table legs. Yeah. So another thing that I did with these legs, thinking of my children... Each one of the legs has at least one shelf cut into it, like an enclosed shelf, not a hole into the cylinder, mm-hmm. but a shelf. And some have two, because I knew that when children play under the table, 
they have to have a place to put their little toys they're playing with. And so when the legs first went under the table, immediately my youngest daughter, who's about three then, she crawls under the table and starts putting her little toys on the little shelves that she found. So, see, it's the ability to think like a child and to think about how children are and the kinds of things they like. Mm -hmm. And they like little space. They like things that are scaled to them. So I did all this little kid scaling things around the house for them. So it's this transferring of techniques that I was taught, like I said, fabric and jewelry, Mm -hmm. and using them in a domestic setting, but it's still art. So your aesthetic, how has it changed throughout the year, or or has it really? Was it has it always been, you know, that? Because I, I know you mentioned before when you were starting off earlier with, um, especially with your your children's invitations, and and they started getting bolder and bolder. Mm-hmm. But has that always? Did you always want to make these these giant bold items, even from the early days, or or did you have to, I guess, give yourself permission to do that? Well. That's a really interesting question, Yuri, because you see, um, that's part of discovering myself and my ability to express myself. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting that, um, aside from like artwork for when I was in fashion school, and I don't really, I mean, I was terrible at that. <laughs> Because <laughs> I can't really draw. I'm an abstract artist. I was like in prison. Ah, I can't do this. Get me out of here. Um, so, you know, using the format of the collage, which is wonderful because anyone can make collage. It's like falling off a log, you know. You can make it whatever you want. It's, I, mean, I just see that collage is being freedom. So, but you see, I didn't have the the guts yet. <laughs> That's the way I'm putting it. I mean, I just didn't. And I'm making these things, sending them out to my circle of friends. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I mean, I thought they were okay when I did them, but I probably didn't realize how, I mean, they were fun and everything, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't think of them as being restrained at the time. And I guess I still don't see them as being that way, but, but definitely you can see, as I said earlier, my style changing and becoming so much bolder. And so also it's interesting to me too that at first, because like to, to get to a point where you declare yourself as being an artist when you no, no one ever said that to you that you were one, you never went to art school, mm-hmm. and to start saying that I'm an artist, that can be a really scary thing. And so the way that I look at it is, I began to whisper to myself that I was an artist, and eventually that whisper became a natural speaking voice. Hmm. So I see the collages in the same way, that they kind of began with whispers, and then they turned into what is my natural speaking voice. And so I see this parallel. And also, I think, too, that What's happened is that as I've grown as a person, then my art has grown alongside with me. And that's like an interesting thing, too, I think. And I I believe that that's probably true for many people who are creative people, that as they grow and mature and learn more about living and about life, that that also makes their art change, I think. The art grows, too. 
could you tell me a little bit about your art exhibitions? Um, you know, how they, how you first, uh, you know, how you got your first one and then how they have evolved over the, the years. Well, I haven't had a lot of exhibits yet. And one of the reasons why is because I always had felt that I was going to work harder and ramp things up more when my kids were older because I've been a single mom all these years. Mm-hmm. And so I've done things here and there over the years. And I I can't remember what when I first showed in something, but like, you know, just like a number of other things, this whole accidental thing, going back to that again. Um, I had a, a, an exhibit, uh, I guess you call it, it was an installation, totally mm-hmm. installation, at Jeffrey, New York, down in the Meatpacking District. Mm-hmm. And they took all of my sculpture pieces and did them in a tumble and a jumble. You walk in the store and right on the right-hand side were all these pieces of mine. And so it was like a one-person installation for a month at Jeffrey. But I didn't – what happened is that the person who was the creative director of Jeffrey came to my house for dinner. <laughs> 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 and so that's how it happened. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so different things have happened like that for me. And the last thing that I did uh, last week, I was in the International Contemporary Furniture Fair, and – that was really a surprise to me because I had attended FIT, mm-hmm. and FIT, I got an email from them. I'm sitting here minding my own business, and then I get an email from them saying, oh, do you want to be involved in a, a booth, an alumni booth at the ICFF? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding me. So, again... They just found my work online, and then they invited me to be involved in this. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been like in – I was in a show with the Armory, like a juried arts and crafts show once, and I did another uh, outdoor thing at um, Rockefeller Center. So I've done different things over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I – I don't like have a set thing yet about how to to – generate monies in terms of like cyclical things or shows I always do anything like that yet. Mm-hmm. I'm still putting that together, but there are other ways that that I generate money. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways is by I have photo shoots here at my apartment. So, you know, this is the April Miller Zeitgeist, right? <laughs> yes, it's the Zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. So like I said earlier, I'm on hold for this TV commercial for Crayola Crayons. Mm-hmm. And let me see. I've done shoots with Saks Fifth Avenue. I did an incredible shoot with them. And in the process of doing the shoot, they also interviewed me for their blog because they came over and they were going, wait a minute, we have to talk to the woman who owns this place. <laughs> yeah. Who are you? What are you doing? What do you do? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, things sort of happen by doing stuff with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had shoots here for Lee Jeans and Mademoiselle Magazine, um, ASOS Clothing Company, and that was with Zoe Kravitz. She had a little video of her here. 
So over the years, I've done lots and lots of different shoots. I can't even remember, you know, all the names of them, the companies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, like a working mother magazine, um, I've done a number of like catalog shoots for like preteen clothing companies, things like that. Um, kids fashion shoots a lot, mm-hmm. but I'm excited about this Crayola shoot because I've never done a TV commercial before. Yeah. So that would be like really, really fun to have a TV commercial. That would be great. I've had like TV show pilots shot here, um, you know, all, all kinds of stuff over the years. So that that's one thing. That's one way of generating revenue. And then I get paid to do tours of my space. And sometimes sales arrive from those experiences. Mm-hmm. And I used to do open studios. Um, I don't do those anymore. It was for a while. And then I sent out a monthly email list to my people. And sometimes that can yield results too. Mm-hmm. People find me through different publicity things that I've done and contact me about different things. So it's kind of like a, right now kind of like a mishmash of things. But when I did the ICFF, that was a very different experience for me. And I, I'm still kind of processing it because it was, you know, it's, it's very much to the trade and I'd let people talk to me about how many of these pieces can you make, mm-hmm. uh, licensing conversations, um, it just the, the whole world of design that I don't usually think about that much or, or really, you know, people always think I'm a designer, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, but I think that actually my place ultimately is going to end up being straddling both the art and the design world. I think that's because I'm not really exclusively one or the other. I think I really am kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I, I think of it, it's what I call the teeter, the teeter. I'm teetering like on a teeter-totter. Oh, yeah. But I don't land on one side or the other. I'm still teetering in the center. And, you know, I make these furniture sculptures the way I do. Obviously, on purpose, right? On purpose, Mm -hmm. I make them the way that I do. Mm -hmm. Because they're not really furniture, even though they're exactly like a piece of furniture. They're art pieces that you can sit on that tell stories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a whole different kind of thing like when you do trade shows it's like very much hit and run people are very busy um they just want to look take pictures get your card run away mm-hmm. um and it's not like an art exhibit where people have a paper about the work that's there and they're learning about the artist they want to know what the artist does who is the artist they're leisurely walking around the gallery it's like so different from that mm-hmm. so it was very um you know, kind of hectic and, uh, and like I said, this whole idea of this whole different world of like licensing and, um, making pieces for hotels and this kind of thing, um, was really different for me. So, you know, it's a matter of like following up with people and, you know, also some publicity things that might come out of that too, which would be good. Mm-hmm. But I, I showed, my newest sculptures at this show, my newest pieces, and 
out of all the pieces I've made, and I've made a lot over the years, these are the best pieces I've ever done. And I was just like, I was so happy the way they turned out. And because I made them as a set, you look at them and you can tell that they're related to each other. And I put different elements in them so that they would be related. And they're called Chair for Hope, number one, number two, and number three. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, they are actually a commentary, a statement on our post-Obama world. And so I put these elements in them that to me are, are symbols of hope, such as I, the welting I used around all of them. I used a yellow fabric because yellow to me is the color of hope. And so these weltings envelop the pieces much like a mother would hold her child. And there are different elements of darkness I put in the pieces. And then I also put a sun symbol on each piece, but it's each piece is a different sun symbol. It's not mm-hmm. the same. And I put on the back of one of them, there's a circle for the sun, and then shooting all across the back, and it's a very large-shaped chair, I did about 12 or 13 trims, like a sunburst, like flying across the back of the chair. And these pieces are like are, are really evocative, and I never had people take as many pictures of <laughs> my pieces as they did at that show. It's like they were just, every time I turned around, there's more pictures. Oh, can I do, oh, picture, picture, picture. And so um, the, people were, were very moved by the pieces, even though it was a trade show. Mm-hmm. They were very moved. So that was a different experience for me, and it was a very good one also. With 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 your home and, and how it's uh, now, you know, and actually has been attracting a lot of attention throughout the years, has it changed or have you added or, or tweaked elements in it or has it been the same as when you first designed it years ago? Well, it occurred to me years ago that I could spend the rest of my life in my house doing things to it. <laughs> Just, you know, weird, funny little things, you know, taking mm-hmm. like little sculptures or beads or putting them on the top of the door jams, you know, just, I mean, all kinds of things, cutting out pieces of paper and sticking them on the walls, different shapes, and just any kind of wild idea you can think to decorate things, just like anything. And then I realized that I I had to make a decision. Was I going to do that and just have my house and my art, or was I going to make other art and get my art pieces out into the world? So I didn't want to just be known for the space. Mm-hmm. So then I started, you know, to to produce more artwork and stop butzing with stuff in the house because it's so fun to do that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it's like so easy, you know, just to think of ideas to do things because I'm like never at a loss for creative ideas. Mm-hmm. They just like come to me, come to me, you know. And sometimes I, I just have to like, tell myself to turn off because I I just I, I just can't I'm like tired of thinking of ideas so I have to sort of turn it off mm-hmm. um, but it's a good thing because I never feel like I'm blocked creatively okay that's good yeah. yeah with as many projects that you're working on how do you manage your your time and, and focus do you have a routine or ritual that you do that that helps you become more creative or get you into a creative flow? Or how do you structure your day? Well, 
It depends on what I'm working on. And part of my story is that I, I'm still mothering. I'm not quite done with that yet. <laughs> <laughs> not quite done yet. Um, my one daughter went away to college and came back to New York City to finish in New York. So she's living with me. Mm-hmm. And my youngest one, even though the older one graduated, my younger one is still a college student. Um, so she's, you know, she comes and goes and she's in an all feminist punk rock band. So they go and tour and come back home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And my other daughter is a DJ. So there's all this like musical stuff happening with my kids. Mm-hmm. But, um, the first thing I like to do when I wake up is put on a Frank Sinatra record. So <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Is there any particular song you pick or well, see the thing is Yuri, you know, I can be very much a creature of habit. And so I swore to the Lord, it's I put on the same CD every day. It isn't like I vary it. It's the same one. So, you know, if I ever like dating someone, I don't know if he'll be able to take that or not. You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, when I feel like I'm beginning to tire of it, then I say, April, OK, just kind of, you know, let's not listen for a couple of days. And then I feel like I'm ready. Then I, I go back and start listening mm-hmm. to it again. But. It's just like when Frank sings, mm-hmm. everything is right with the world. <laughs> okay? So I know that because mm-hmm. he lets me know that. Yeah. So then if I'm working on a project, um, I may work on it at home or I may go to my studio. But I try and go to the studio a few, at least a few days a week. But like doing those last three sculptures, that was – I hadn't made large sculptures in a number of years. I did, I did many smaller ones but not big ones like these pieces are. And so I was like out of the creative loop for making these large pieces. So the first one took a very long time. The second one, not quite as long. And the third was very, very quick. But, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes a lot of what you end up doing with creative work, you just, I mean, then you sit and you look at it. <laughs> you just look <laughs> at it. Okay. Because you can't let it go until you decide that it's okay. So I spent a lot of time futzing with this first one and then just sitting with it because mm-hmm. there's a communing that has to happen sometimes. So it's kind of like I'm not working, but I'm still working. So if I'm doing stuff on my computer, then I usually stay at home to do that. But I don't really have like rituals beyond the Frank thing. Um, I like to be in quiet when I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much with 3D stuff, but I also do a lot of work with, with language. A lot of my work has text to it. And so when I'm doing that, uh, cause I may take an image and I write stuff about, cause I have this whole project about family slides that my father took when we were growing up in my family. Mm-hmm. So it's like a slide project. So I run them off on my computer, the images, and then I look at them on the computer because I can see them better. And then I just start writing about what I'm seeing. And it's interesting because part of what I'm looking for in the images is the color yellow. I'm looking for hope in these pictures. So I write about whether I see hope or not amongst the people in the images. And so it's like a free form thing that happens. And when I'm doing that kind of work, writing work, I need to have the world be more quiet when I'm doing that Mm -hmm. so I can focus on it. And then other times 
because it's common for me to have a text that either goes on an object or accompanies an object that I've made. Now, I haven't done that with those large furniture sculptures before, but, you know, I could I could actually start that. Mm-hmm. So I might be working on a collage or a shadow box or something, and I'll have a big tablet next to me. So I'm writing down words and thoughts and phrases and ideas as I'm making the, the visual piece, and that's very common for me to do that. So um, I like quiet when I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it depends on the needs of the project. Um, You know, I I may work at something like many hours a week and other projects, I may not work that much with them. But I also find that because I make so many different kinds of work, I have so many bodies of work that it's helpful for me if I have something that's happening with something, then I can focus on that. Otherwise, it may just be I just keep working and working and working until I feel like a project's done. But I also may have what I call like long-term projects Mm -hmm. that I may work on or have a goal with them. Like I may want to do like 60 of something or 50 of something. So I keep working at it, you know, off and on until I get to the place where I want to get with it. So I, I also have noticed that my work often... If I do something that's large, it's a larger expression, then the next project that I do has to be something that's small and tight. And then I'll go back to larger the next time. And then I'll go back to small and tight again. It's just interesting how that happens. Yeah. So with everything you've done and and throughout your career, you've, you've had to put yourself out there. Um, oh my God! Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So, how do you approach those times when you're you're fearful about doing that, or just feeling, you know, that, that maybe what you're working on isn't going to be well received? How do you overcome those those uh, elements and, and feelings of fear? And well, I'm really glad that you asked that question because I think it's an important thing for creative people to talk about amongst themselves and also to speak with others in the world about that topic. So I have to say that for myself, there are times that I can feel extremely confident about my work. And generally speaking, I guess, I probably feel that way most of the time. And it helps, of course, if you have a lot of things going on. Like if I have a lot of things coming up in the future, you know, I have an artist talk or You know, like I may have this photo shoot or, you know, I had the thing last week with ICFF um, or I'm doing a a talk with a a gallery with an organization that I'm involved with um, this coming Wednesday. So the more things I have going on, you know, I think it, it helps to feed into my confidence. And it's the times when there's not so much activity that you can start thinking, oh, the world's forgotten about me, even though maybe in three months the world's forgotten about you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that sometimes I I do feel afraid, and it's not so much about my work being ill-received. It's not that. Um, It's more like, how can I describe it? I guess that 
that sometimes it's the idea of putting yourself out there and trying to make things happen with the work that you've made. And, and that can be really scary. And I, I um, am thinking about the kinds of things that I would have to say to people who are trying to make things happen for themselves and may not have a lot of experience yet. Um, one of the things that I would say is that fear is part of the package. Mm-hmm. It's part of the story. And, um, you know, I may give myself pep talks. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to myself a lot sometimes. But anyway, I think pep talks are good. And you know what else is good? If you have any press anywhere, mm-hmm. read your flipping press, okay? <laughs> you read your press where people said these amazing things about you. And you think, you know what? That's me. That's me they're writing about. So how does that feel? Let that in. So if people have press, that's another way they can use it to help themselves. It's another way to use it. I think it's a really important tool to use. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I definitely agree. Because I know so times, so many times when you're working on projects, it's it's so easy to forget about all the positive things that were said about you and just get stuck in your head and focus on all the negatives so having that reminder is is a, a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also, like in thinking of other things that I could tell people in terms of what I've learned and advice for others, mm-hmm. I think that it's really important to discover your story. What is your story? You have to know your story. And then you should use that story to get as much publicity as you possibly can. But it's hard to get publicity unless you know what your story is. Mm-hmm. So as I was saying earlier, I spent so much time just endlessly writing to find my story. And I was you know, determined to do that, as determined that I was going to find it and be able to speak about it in an eloquent way and in a way that other people would enjoy listening to me describe it. Mm-hmm. And so that has been really important to me. And I think, too, that it's so interesting because, Yuri, even like I was interviewed for um, the art blog Hyperallergic, and maybe that was like three years ago or so, three or four years ago, and I read that interview, and it's like I can't believe it. what I was I was saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying nothing. And like with all the writing and stuff that I have done and trying to get to the bottom of it and stuff, mm-hmm. I, I guess that I I still wasn't quite there yet, even though I'd spent a lot of time doing that. But now what I'm saying, you know, I compare and contrast. I say very different things now than I did then. I think that I was talking more about what I did, not the why of what I did, mm-hmm. which are very different things. So then also I want to say that when you're trying to find what to do and how to do it, I want to caution people to be very wary when hiring people to help you with things, helping with marketing plans, helping with um, to act as a mentor, Because in the art world especially, artists are so insecure. Mm -hmm. They're very insecure. 
And I also believe that um, many artists can be more, what is it, um, you're more introverted is the word I'm seeking. That they're happy being in their studio and making work and not so much communing with other people. Mm-hmm. And so when you go out and you seek someone to help you, perhaps you're not really that adept in dealing with people and you may not be able to suss out when someone is really genuine and when someone's not. Mm-hmm. And it's like any other profession. How does that, what's that expression? Many serve, but few are called. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the expression. Many people are doctors, but not that many are really healers. There are only a few people who are true healers. And the people that are really, really gifted at their craft, I don't think that there are that many of them. And if you don't have a lot of experience with people and hiring people, I think that um, artists especially get themselves into trouble by simply not having enough experience to figure out who they should give their money to to help them get places. Mm-hmm. So then I would also say, and this is attached to the idea of being scared. <laughs> let's not say fear let's say being scared okay i'm scared now all right we're scared what are we going to do you have to be willing to be scared and part of that willingness is you have to be able to stretch yourself and step into the unknown and there there are no two ways about that you can't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was saying before, <clears throat> the idea of stretching and growing as a person and then having your art and your business life grow along with you as you grow as a person. And all these things really very much go hand in hand with each other mm-hmm. in my experience. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is this is like an art or a design piece of advice I was given. Um, And I was told something like, it doesn't matter what color you choose, just start choosing the colors. (laughs) And so, see, in in terms of, of allowing myself to just be free and just, you know, not match and it doesn't matter, that really hit me. When I heard that, when I was told that, I thought, you know, that's like another declaration of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't matter what colors you're using because you put so much together, at least that's how I work. Mm -hmm. I put so many together that doesn't matter which ones you're using because they're all there. So it's not about matching or like I said, I always try to not match if I can do that. Mm -hmm. I try and, as I said, do everything backwards and do everything wrong. (laughs) 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 and actually with that in mind yuri i do have an article on linkedin i have to plug this okay and it's called how to do everything wrong a manifesto so it's all about how to do it wrong and i tell people how they can get there and um because I'm also a recovering perfectionist, see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of a helpful living in the world and being a creative person is to be a recovering perfectionist. Mm-hmm. The idea that 
you can know what's good enough. And you're not holding yourself back because you have these crazy ideas about perfect. So April, thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to um, see more of your artwork as well as read more about what you're working on, what is the best way they can do that? Well, you can follow me on Instagram. I think probably Instagram is the best place. Of course, I, I tweet and mm-hmm. you know I Facebook and I have my Insta account. So it's probably Instagram, and that's okay. at April Miller Art is my Insta handle. Um, but then I'm also April Miller on Facebook too, and my business Facebook page is <laughs> the April Miller Zeitgeist. Okay, that's great. I will put links <laughs> to all of those in the show notes so people can just click through and and uh, contact you directly. Oh, and then Twitter is at April Miller two six. Also, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I got all the bases covered. <laughs> okay, perfect. Great. And I'll also add a link into I'll I'll look up your uh, your LinkedIn article and I'll also add that in so they can click through there. Well, that'd be really fun because, you know, I, I do a lot of writing and that's like one of my my goals is that I want to get more of my things published. And also I'm working on having more um, paid speaking gigs, too, because I have a very unusual point of view, an orthodox point of view. And because I'm a preacher's daughter, I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yuri, thank you so much. This has been a very, very nice experience to meet with you and talk with you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Art Podcast. If you liked this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to advanceyourart.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.